Good evening. You're listening to Left Out on WRCT 88.3 FM. I'm Danny Slater, and uh, I'm uh, here today um, without Bob Harper because he was uh, he's traveling today. If you'd like to give us a call during the program, you can give us a call at 412-268-9728, and uh, we'll be happy to uh, to talk to you about any of the issues we're we're discussing on the on the program. So uh, today I have a couple of things uh, over the last week or two since our last program to to discuss, and there's a lot lot going on. And then later in the program, we'll be having a guest to discuss um, issues of uh, clean air um, and uh, energy generation in uh, western Pennsylvania. But um, so uh, Left Out, as you know, is a program that discusses uh, news and and views left out of the mainstream media. And uh, it's on every two weeks here, uh, alternating with uh, On Your Health, I believe, uh, on alternate Tuesdays at 6 o'clock. So the first thing I wanted to talk about is a... um, an excerpt I've taken from a program called Ring of Fire. Ring of Fire is a weekly radio program. Um, it's on Air America Radio, which I, um, I'm uh, unfortunately, I'm, I'm sad to say there is no um, Air America affiliate in Pittsburgh, although we do have one station that has one of their programs, but we, we don't have really an affiliate for Air America, and I think that's a shame because it's a great, a great network with lots of really good programs on it. So this excerpt is taken from a program called Ring of Fire, with Robert F. Kennedy and uh, Mike Papantonio, and the show is um, is on on Saturdays, and um, discusses all kinds of issues. And, and Robert F. Kennedy is, of course, uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is the son of Robert F. Kennedy, who was, um, uh, as you know, the brother of John F. Kennedy, um, and um, he's a very well known environmentalist and a lawyer for environmental causes. So this excerpt uh, that I'm going to take is from the program from a week ago, um, which is an interview or a small segment of an interview with a guy named Ron Suskind who wrote a book called The One Percent Doctrine, Deep Inside America's Pursuit of Its Enemies Since 9-11. So we'll play the excerpt right now. It's Robert F. Kennedy interviewing Ron Suskind about uh, some things that happened uh, near the beginning of of the U.S. response to 9-11. Here we go. Right now we're back with author and Pulitzer Prize winning journalist Ron Suskind. We're talking about Ron's latest book, The One Percent Doctrine, Deep Inside America's Pursuit of Its Enemies Since 9-11. One of the other real failures of this administration's foreign policies has been the failure to capture Osama bin Laden. You know, Bobby, we have in the book, I have the specific instance at the end of November in a briefing in the White House with the CIA that was really the point of the spear in Afghanistan. Uh, you know, it's, it's the CIA that was largely directing uh, the campaign to get bin Laden, where a CIA advisor, Hank Crumpton, says to the president, with others present, Mr. President, if we don't move forces from other parts of Afghanistan, some had landed uh, at that point elsewhere in the country, 1,200 Marines, they were there, they were available. If we don't move them to Tora Bora immediately, we really run the risk of losing bin Laden. We will lose him. Uh, and the president at that point said, you're telling me these Afghan proxies are not up to the task. And Crumpton says they are definitely not up to the task. They're not committed to getting bin Laden. They're exhausted. They're cold. And and it was a warning in due time, plenty of time to act at the end of November uh, directly to the president, either move now or you will lose Osama bin Laden. The president did not heed the advice. He clearly was listening to Don Rumsfeld, Tommy Franks, God knows who else. But ultimately, that was an enormous failure in terms of the president making the wrong decision that has profound consequences going forward. Now, during the 2004 election, I remember Dick Cheney and other leading Republicans just before the election suggesting publicly that a victory by John Kerry would be regarded as a kind of triumph by Osama bin Laden and the al-Qaeda cronies. And people dismissed that, but it was reported widely in the press. But what you found out is that in the mind of Osama bin Laden, that the re-election of Bush was actually a good thing, and that Osama bin Laden released his October surprise message in 2004 specifically to help Bush's re-election. It's an extraordinary moment, really. You know, look, I am not pro-Bush or anti-Bush. I'm pro-fact. I try to get the disclosures so people can judge them, see them, 
and make decisions. And and here you have an instance a week before, uh, just a few days before the 04 election, bin Laden sends out his videotape inside of the CIA. The folks who really are experts on bin Laden, they've been studying him for years. Of course, they're saying bin Laden does what he does for reasons. He's quite strategically sensible and strategically directed. That's clear. And secondly, everybody agreed bin Laden did an enormous favor for the president today by criticizing a mostly Bush and and you know, and mentioning Michael Moore and mentioning Kerry. I mean, essentially, it could have been an advertisement for the president. And what's interesting is at this moment, the analysis again inside of the CIA that Bin Laden clearly from this tape uh, showed that he wanted Bush uh, reelected. Uh, that the tape clearly helped the president. It was designed to help the president. If they didn't want to do that, they would have done it differently. And the fact is, is that in some ways, uh, Bush and bin Laden are, historically speaking, kind of a, a doppelganger pair. What the polls show, and this is another sort of secret inside poll in terms of the government, is that Bush's ratings rise when bin Laden's presence is a forceful one. That's why the president's mentioning bin Laden at every chance he gets right now with the new, the new election coming. And the same for bin Laden. In some ways, Bush helps define bin Laden. Bin Laden helps define Bush to each of their own constituencies. And when one is vivid, the other's ratings go up. This is something they know inside of the White House. And ultimately, the question not asked and the question which I think is most important, is what is it about the way the United States has conducted this so-called war on terror that bin Laden would want Bush and his policies continued? That's the $64,000 question. Right, but it's not a puzzling question at all. This debacle in Iraq has yep. become a, a recruiting cause for al-Qaeda and associated groups. Osama bin Laden's picture is on T-shirts on the Arab street across the world. Osama bin Laden was uh, intensely unpopular after 9-11. It was only the, the bungled war in Iraq that has now made him far more popular than Bush across the world. So they are kind of doppelgangers. They're partners that have been feeding off each other you know, the, at the great expense of the rest of the planet. Yep. You know, I mean, what's fascinating is if you want to mark a starting point, I think the best place is September the 12th, the day after the attacks. Look, look, who knows whether we could have prevented the attacks or not? That's debatable. But September 12th was a day that we marshaled ourselves for a response. And at that point, everything's on our ledger. We have control. How will we respond? If you look at September 12th and the few days following it, you see the world allied with us, even the Arab world, saying, what can we do to help? You know, we're getting something superpowers almost never get, which is sympathy and, and desires to cooperate. That was the moment of breathtaking opportunity in this new kind of battle. Where are we five years later? The victories, and we did win some victories tactically in the first two years, especially Bobby, this is important, especially in the realm of human intelligence. That's what wins these battles. It's not the electronic stuff, which I think has been overrated. It's folks saying, I will help, though you might not think I'm inclined to do that. Folks inside of the Arab world, folks close enough to the jihadists to hear something pertinent. We had some of those in the first two years. Since Iraq, we've had virtually zero. I mean, it's, it's really quite breathtaking. Human intelligence, which will save us. That's what the British were able to summon, essentially to save our bacon on this London plot. It was a guy, a British citizen, who after the London bombings in 2005 said, that's not my Islam, though he was a fundamentalist. He heard something pertinent. He says, I'm going to report it to British authorities. That's why we were able to, a year later, essentially not have planes blowing up over our, our cities in the United States. The chance of a person doing that now in terms of the United States, are all but slim to none by virtue of our angry, blustery, military-based profile. That's not the way you fight this kind of war. You fight it with subtlety, with tactical forcefulness, with a kind of smartness where you say, I want to divide my enemy, not unite them. I want to unite my allies, not divide them. How could we have done anything further from that in the last few years is, is hard to imagine. So that was an excerpt from an interview um, between uh, well, well, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. was interviewing uh, Ron Suskind, the author of a new book called The One Percent Doctrine, Deep Inside America's Pursuit of Its Enemies Since 9-11. And I think it makes some really great points that, that really are not maybe not understood by everybody that well. Um, by the way, this is left out on WRCT 88.3. If you have any um, comments to make, please give us a call at 412 268 
3.7563. So the points uh, that, that, that he makes there, I mean, um, the three points that I, that I noticed were, one is the uh, Bush's explicit decision not to allocate more forces to get, uh, to get bin Laden in the winter of 2001-2002. Another one is this point that actually uh, the best thing that ever happened to Bush is bin Laden and um, how bin Laden, the best thing that happened to bin Laden is Bush. Um, that uh, in the, the October surprise of 2004 when bin Laden came out with a tape um, uh, right before the election acting as though he didn't like Bush, but knowing full well that that exact, you know, his statement of not liking Bush would cause Bush to get more votes because he wants Bush to win. Um, so uh, it somehow duped the American people in an amazing way. Um, and the third point was, was um, I thought, was a crucial point about the sympathy that, that the U.S. had right after 9-11. Even the Arab world was sympathetic. And um, the, way to, the way to get these terrorists, the terrorists were, were recognized as, as, you know, the heinous criminals that they were all over the world. At that point, they would have gotten no cooperation from almost any, any, any banks or any other institutions, any individuals. They would have, and, and this is, they, they made it hard, would, would have been impossible for them to operate. Where everywhere they went, they would realize that the person they talked to might be suspicious of them and, and might, be, uh, might just turn them in. Now they've turned it all around, so everybody, the, the, the Arab world uh, likes him, and he can get away, and he's disappeared. They can't catch him now because they've got no leads. So that, th those are all really important uh, points about how, how poorly um, Bush has handled this stuff since 9-11. Um, so uh, maybe we should uh, – I have another excerpt from Air America, um, but I think I'll postpone playing that now and introduce our, our guest. And if we have time at the end, maybe we can go to the, the second excerpt that I have. Um, so um, today we have uh, Mike Parker of the Group Against Smog and Pollution, also known as GASP. Welcome to Left Out, Mike. Thanks for having me today, Danny. So um, – Mike is the, uh, the policy and outreach coordinator for GASP, and um, maybe you could just start out with briefly telling us what uh, what is GASP and what, what do you do over there? Well, uh, GASP is a uh, environmental nonprofit organization. Uh, we're from we're located here in Pittsburgh. We have offices in Squirrel Hill. Uh, our mission is to advocate for uh, clean air issues in uh, the south southwestern Pennsylvania region. We uh, have a variety of campaigns right now. Uh, we're focused on diesel emissions. We're focused on um, uh, uh, waste coal-fired power plants. Uh, we're also uh, turning our attention towards uh, global warming issues as well. So uh, you mostly do things like do you, you deal with um, with actually trying to affect legislation, or or you make public do you help uh, the public comment periods? You get involved with that. We. We, uh, as far as affecting legislation, we do that on a limited basis because we are uh, a 501c3 organization. Um, our, our main, um, our main activities are, are generally public education. Um, uh, we do teacher workshops. We do other education um, activities at schools. Uh, we hold uh, um, educational events for the general public. Uh, we, uh, we're also. We do you ever inspect power plants? One of my friends. Uh, Marin Cook, who is involved with GASP, she she's told me that she's actually been involved in inspecting, um, yes, looking at power plants. Yes, we do. We have a, what's called a smoke reader program where we uh, will uh, 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 enable citizens to, in, of Allegheny County to get certified as smoke readers uh, where they can go and observe the emissions from a smokestack. Uh, they observe the opacity, uh, the level of light that passes through the uh, the smoke exiting the, uh, the stack. Um, and there are uh, regulations that limit the amount of uh, the opacity of smokestack emissions. And uh, our smoke readers uh, go and um, compare uh, these emissions from smokestacks they observe with, with charts, and, and, and uh, they're able to determine um, relatively accurately the, uh, the percentage of the opacity exit, uh, of the, uh, the emissions exiting the stack. And uh, once... If there's any violations, notice those violations are reported to the uh, the Allegheny County Health Department for for them to, uh, um, you know, enforce uh, mm -hmm. under so, their discretion. So, the, so the laws about limiting, of course, the, the emissions rules, regulations that put limits on, however, you know, weak. There are some limits on 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 what the the amount of the pollution that can come out of these smokestacks. That's right, and. Uh, 
th that's just one of the uh, the many different um, standards that are applying to uh, that apply to, to smokestack industries. One of them being opacity, opacity limits. Others, they actually measure the the amount of pollutants that exit the the stack instead of uh, um, using a proxy like a uh, opacity. Opacity is a, generally uh, viewed as a uh, um, a indicator of uh, particulates in the uh, in, in the uh, smoke stream, but it's very crude in the sense that you don't know what's really in those particles, whether it's, it's sulfur or or other types of pollution. Yeah, the opacity, like I said, the opacity is more of like an indicator. Uh, it it doesn't actually level uh, measure the uh, the levels of any particular pollutant. So uh, you mentioned um, you mentioned uh, diesel emissions and school buses. Yes, yes, we have a uh, a, a a campaign right now to um, limit um, diesel uh, emissions from school buses. Uh, diesel is a highly toxic uh, uh, substance. The emissions from it are very toxic. It's uh, it's actually um, quite carcinogenic. Uh, there's also uh, it's also high in particulate matter emissions, especially fine particulates. Uh, and those uh, that particular pollutant is a is a serious health concern that uh, we have a. a uh, uh, we're in a non-attainment status here in Pittsburgh. Uh, for non-attainment status? Yes. Uh, the uh, Clean Air Act uh, designates, uh, requires the EPA to designate uh, every area of the country into either a, an attainment status or a non-attainment status for uh, any, for the, uh, for the criteria pollutants. Uh, the criteria pollutants are, uh, there's six major pollutants uh, regulated by the Clean Air Act um, based on health standards and those are generally termed the uh, the uh, criteria pollutants or the, na the so non-attainment means that we're, we're we're in danger we're over the limit of Correct. some of those some of those pollutants Correct we're not meeting the health health based standards for so, particulate matter So like regarding uh, the diesel um, the diesel fumes that, that uh, you know the the, the smokestack uh, fumes um, don't they have the similar system for 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 buses uh, and trucks that that we have for cars, like we have to get our car inspected every year, and they test the emissions. If it's not working, they have to fix it. You know, don't they have the same thing? Isn't that doesn't that solve the problem? N no, they they uh they don't inspect buses. They just let them do whatever they want. Pretty much the the uh, the problem is is That's shocking. Being, yes, relatively the the uh, they have addressed it somewhat. Uh, the uh, there are new standards out uh, for diesel uh, vehicles. Um, all diesel vehicles from the 2007 model year and later uh, are required to have uh, filters that filter out the majority of the uh, the toxins in the exhaust. Uh, however, any since diesel vehicles uh, generally 2007. have 2007. Yes, 2007. Okay, so, so they haven't even hit the they road haven't yet. Haven't hit the road yet. Yes. So, uh, so all the older diesel vehicles, all the ones that are currently on the road, are emitting uh, at the the high levels that they. So. so I mean, I guess with cars, there probably is some sort of grandfathering in. If you have a, a real antique car, they're not going to hold you to the high standards because that car can't meet those standards. But you're saying with buses, they really don't even have any standard. Well, like I said, uh, no, at, at this moment they don't, but they are implementing some standards. There's the, the requirements uh, for 2007 models and uh, later, and they're also uh, implemented an ultra-low sulfur diesel uh, program where um, – Diesel fuel sold after a certain date, um, uh, it has to be what's called ultra-low sulfur, sulfur diesel. So sulfur is one of the pollutants that, yes, that it's comes one of the out of diesel. Yes. I, I, just, I just, you know, I mean, we've seen, anybody who's lived in Pittsburgh has seen these buses and trucks moving down that's just making plumes. And they, you can see it blocks and blocks down the road behind the bus or the, or the truck. Yeah, and you're yes. saying that's just totally legal. My answer is, I always say, why don't the cops pull those guys over? Well, They're pulling cars over all the time. But you're saying that actually legally there isn't anything wrong with that. That's correct. That's astounding. That's correct. There, there are uh, in Allegheny County there is a uh, an anti idling ordinance for for diesel uh, vehicles, um, buses, uh, any other diesel vehicles, um, uh, semis, you can't on, just on road diesel. There. You can't just let your uh, diesel vehicle sit there and idle. Uh, so, as long as you're moving and letting the pollution go everywhere, it's it's okay. Right. That's the, yeah. <laughs> okay. So, uh, what what are you guys proposing to do about that? What are you doing in, in the GASP organization about this? Well, uh, we're we're pushing to have uh, school districts um, and eventually possibly the uh, the port authority to retrofit their uh, buses with uh, a variety of uh, filters that will remove um, 
the toxins from from diesel exhaust. So it's a it's a so it's a filtering system that that like an air filter that just Ex- yes it takes the particles out. And then every then you have to probably have to every few days or every some number of hours of use you have to pop the new filter in or something, right? Um, I believe it is. Uh, the filter has to be changed uh, with each oil change, so it's not it's oh. not a very regular okay. That's not occurrence. Not no. very often. Yeah, that's. Um, then how much does that cost to for, to equip one bus with this? I mean, it va- it varies. Yes, thousands of dollars. Uh, it varies. There's different types of filters. Uh, there's a a DOC filter, which is diesel oxidation catalyst. I believe I have that acronym correct, but uh, it it's um. It's the lower end performance filter. It filters out about thirty percent of the uh, the particulates that, um, and other pollutants from uh, the diesel exhaust. Then there is the uh, the higher performing filter, which is a uh, DPF filter, a diesel particulate filter, and that will filter up to ninety uh, percent or greater. Of, uh-huh. uh, of yeah, the, of the it's almost not worth doing the thirty percent filter. Uh, um, this, the thirty percent filter is is much more inexpensive. It's, it's not as okay. expensive. Okay. The uh, that one, I believe, uh, if I have the figure correct, is about a thousand. Is costs about a thousand dollars. The uh, DPF costs about seven thousand dollars. Okay. Uh, there's also a crankcase filter on school buses and other buses. Uh, the diesel fumes actually filter in from the the uh, engine compartment into the uh, the passenger compartment of the vehicle. So the uh, passengers are actually exposed to a uh, higher percentage of the fumes than the people outside the bus. Uh, so that can be fixed by installing a crankcase filter, and I believe uh, those are about seven hundred dollars. Mm. Okay. So uh, so if you guys have been pushing for that and and trying to help out or Cause that to happen? Is this starting to starting to happen? There now? has I mean, been some success. Uh, the there are several school districts in the area: Plumboro, Penn Hills, uh, and, and one other one uh, that have uh, that do have filters on their buses. Uh, there's also uh, a grant that was, a grant program was just approved by the uh, Allegheny County uh, Board of Health uh, to uh, assist. Um, Allegheny County school districts to install filters. So there is there is progress in that area, and, and uh, it looks like there may be some more funding coming down uh, coming down the pipes in the future for for uh, um, more filters in okay. the Pittsburgh region. So uh, we're talking to Mike Parker of GASP, the group against smog and pollution. Uh, by the way, their website is www.gasp-pgh.org. You want to give us a call? The number is four one two two six eight nine seven two eight. So uh, let's see. There are a lot of other issues here that uh, that you're involved with at GASP. Um, one of the ones I think that's sort of now becoming a hot a hot issue politically is the the waste coal uh, proposals or GOB proposals that they that they have. Maybe yeah. you can talk about that. Yes, we've been involved in uh, in fighting waste uh, coal plants for quite some time now. Um, going on about two years at this point. Uh, there's been two major plants proposed in the area, one of them being the Beach Hollow uh, Power Project in Robinson Township in Washington County, the other being the... Uh, Robinson Township? Yes. That's just like five or ten miles from here. Uh, well, there's Robinson Township in Allegheny County, and then there's oh, Robinson Township one. in Washington County. Okay. Uh, but it is right on the border with Allegheny County. Um, okay, so I, we were talking yesterday about the waste coal concept that... Um, let me just mention what what it is. It's the it's the when coal is mined, they get the good stuff out, and that's that's what they used to burn. Correct. And, they, and as a pro, by an additional component, they pull out of the ground is this other stuff that they didn't use to burn, but they made giant piles of this, this waste correct. coal. Yeah, and they've accumulated massive piles in the region from from the period of about 1900 to 1970. Um, they're they're all over the place, literally. Um, one of the largest, possibly the largest one in the world, uh, or the United States, I'm not sure which, is is based in Nemecolon, uh, which would be the site of, at the site of the uh, proposed green energy uh, resource recovery project. Uh, it's termed green energy, not in the sense that it's environmentally <laughs> friendly. It's it's in the sense that it's located in Greene County. Oh, oh, it's G R E E N E. Yes, correct. Which is the <laughs> tip off that it is that it's the opposite of green. It's it's yes, Greene County being the one of the most polluted counties in the country. So, um, so maybe maybe you can tell us a little more about. So that, that they they've got a tech technology now that they can use that that waste coal for energy. Correct. But they the, didn't used to be able to do that. 
Well, the the C, the, the the technology that they use to uh, to burn waste coal uh, is called a CFB boiler, a circulating circulating fluidized bed boiler. Uh, it, it that method of con- combustion has been around for quite some time, but uh, it hasn't been applied on a large scale to waste coal until very recently. Uh, for many years, the largest waste coal-fired f- uh, plants in um, in Pennsylvania, uh, I believe there's 18 of them in the nation, 14 of which are in Pennsylvania. Uh, the largest of them for quite some time was about was under 100 megawatts, uh, around 70, 75 megawatts. Uh, now, uh, with the Green Energy Project, um, that one, I believe, if I remember correctly, is 522 megawatts. So they're, they've really upped the stakes uh, yeah. on, on the, the waste coal. And part of the reason for that is, uh, is uh, Pitts, excuse me, um, Pennsylvania's um, Alternative Energy Portfolio Standards Act, uh, which actually defines waste coal as an alternative energy source and gives preference to it in, uh, in the portfolio. I see. So it's considered to be like wind or solar. It's classified. Well, it's not quite classified in the same category as as wind or solar. There's two two different categories uh, under the Act. There's the Tier 1 category and there's the Tier 2 category. Uh, The traditional renewables are are, uh, generally uh, classed in the Tier 1 category. And in the Tier 2 category, you're seeing um, things like uh, waste coal, uh, coal bed methane, uh, large-scale hydroelectric. Okay, so so, but these are somehow preferred in this this portfolio, the Pennsylvania Alternative Energy Portfolios Act, um, that somehow prefers gives tax breaks or somehow encourages the development of this this well, the, this type of plant. It does encourage the development of it favors uh, the tier two. Um, okay, energy sources. So. Uh, so the Over the course of 15 years, um, the uh, Pennsylvania's energy sources uh, have to be about 18% um, alternative energy uh, under the standards of the SAC, and uh, 10% of that will be to the Tier 2. Only 8% will go towards the uh, the renewables on Tier 1. Uh-huh. Uh, okay. So, so, um, so, so what's, what's wrong with this? That sounds like a great thing, naively. Well, <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the uh, it, it really um, in in many environmentalists' views, it does not put enough of an emphasis on on renewables, uh, and the overemphasis on waste coal, since it is it, it has been emphasized by by the present um, Pennsylvania administration uh, and the DEP, they um, they they seem to favor waste coal uh, in, in some of these new uh, power plant constructions. Uh, construction projects, waste coal. They um, some uh, argue that burning the waste coal is an environmental benefit uh, because the 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 gob piles, some people call them bony piles, uh, are sources of water pollution and they can be sources of air pollution if they they sometimes catch fire and, and burn and smolder and emit uncontrolled emissions into the air. Uh, and they also water when rain water falls on them, it percolates down through the, the coal wastes and causes uh, water pollution. Uh, the water pollution from that can be treated and it is treated at, at several sites in Pennsylvania. Uh, one of them being the Nemecolon site. Uh, and while some of the gob piles do burn, it's not not as frequent as uh, the proponents of burning gob pile for energy sometimes uh, indicate. Uh, we feel that uh, burning gob as an energy source is really a short-sighted. Um, so gob is an alternative, is another name for the waste, waste, coal. waste coal. Yeah, there's there's two different types of waste coal. There's there's gob, which is uh, short for garbage of bituminous, and there's colm, which is the uh, the waste coal from anthracite coal in the uh, eastern part of the state. Uh, bony is bony piles are also referred to gob. So. Uh, so I, I distracted you for a second there. So, so, so if you burn this, what, what is it? What is it, What are the, what's the result? What are the environmental downsides of doing it? Well, uh, waste coal has a lower heat value than regular coal. Um, approximately um, a little more than half the heat value of uh, regular coal. So that means that um, 
when you burn the waste coal, you're going to have to burn uh, almost twice as much of it to get the same amount of energy than you would from coal. Uh, combine that with the fact that waste coal is generally uh, dirtier than, than regular coal. So if you have to burn twice of it to get um, the same amount of energy and you're, you're emitting twice the amount of pollutants uh, at the same time, it, uh, it's it's very dirty um, system to generate electricity. Uh, and there's also uh, quite a big concern about the ash that results from burning this waste coal. Um, so it's sometimes called fly ash or uh, bottom ash. Uh, it uh, it's it's basically concentrated um, toxins because the uh, the waste left over from um, burning the uh, waste coal uh, often is it will not often always is very high in uh, uh, toxic heavy metals uh-huh. and, and, and substances like that. Okay, so uh, we're talking to Mike Parker of GASP, the group against smog and pollution. Um, if you want to give us a call, it's 412-268-9728. So uh, I think it's, I mean, it's, I find it kind of astounding. I mean, in addition to what you said about the buses, this other, just the notion that the U.S. is in the process of building more coal-fired plants, you know, in in light of everything we know about global warming, there has been a, and an it's, a, it's a very astounding dis- that this disturbing, is going on. disturbing push to uh, to build uh, new uh, coal-fired power plants uh, before any sort of carbon regulation comes into into play in this country, uh, and they're not the new clean coal plants that President Bush keeps um, uh, singing the praises of. They're generally the old old-fashioned uh, pulverized coal or the waste coal CFB boilers that um, are just as polluting, um, not always just as polluting as the older. The, the older 1950s-style plants are still the the worst, the king polluters out yeah. there, like Hatfields Ferry in, in, in Greene County. Uh, but the, the newer pulverized coal and the CFB boilers are, um, are heavy polluters. For instance, uh, the uh, nitrogen oxide uh, um, Emissions from the green energy plant, uh, I can't remember how many uh, thousands of tons uh, per year will be emitted from the plant, but it's roughly the equivalent of uh, 14 million Honda Civics uh, on the road every year um, just from one power plant. The, 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 the normal driving of 14 million? Driving at 20,000 miles a year. Is that the CO2 emissions or that's, the, the that's other pollution? That's nitrogen oxide pollution. Oh, the NO pollution, yeah. Okay. So, um, yes, there are these other, other technology. If you read Scientific American, they, they had a recent issue about energy, and they talk about uh, these, these, these sophisticated techniques for uh, carbon sequestering, they call it, where they, they, you, you convert the coal to a liquid, then to a gas, and you somehow burn it in a way that you can collect all the carbon, the carbon or the CO2 gets somehow removed and put into lo- turned back into some solid material that gets... You can vary it or something. I mean, I don't know the technology, but this is not what we're talking about. No, no. Uh, the, these new plants that, are, that have been proposed lately, many of them are um, the traditional uh, coal-fired power plants that are just as dirty as, as what you would see anywhere else. It's just, it's just amazing that this is even being, even being considered as an option. So, I mean, I was um, <clears throat> thinking about, I mean, what, I mean, in addition to what I think ought to be a moratorium on construction, of these types of plants, yeah. I just I just um, saw that that uh, that Gore called for a uh, a, a uh, halting of of CO two emissions recently. I think it was today he called for that. Um, the halting of all new CO- um, yes, new CO two emissions. Yeah, I'm not sure the details of what he called for, but it, it has caused a little bit of a stir. Uh, yeah, um, and th- that there's that, and there's also the the the, the whole idea of conservation and, and you and I talked on the phone yesterday a little bit about mm-hmm. that where um, just looking at the way we use electricity mm-hmm. um, my own my own life and and what I see people around me doing I mean there's just like a profligate waste yes of energy um, because of our lifestyles it could many of that could be easily without even sacrificing with only a most minuscule sacrifice you could reduce your energy consumption tremendously. Tremendously. There, there, there can be tremendous gains in, from ener- uh, energy efficiency uh, initiatives across the country. Uh, that would be the quickest and easiest way to, to limit um, uh, emissions from, from 
coal-fired power plants. To obviate the need to to build any new ones. Exactly, exactly. We could use the the ones we've got and phase them out instead of building new ones. And and one of the the other disturbing facts about building all these new plants is often they're not needed. They're they're being built to to, uh, to to simply make money. For instance, in Pennsylvania, uh, we're uh, one of the largest, if not the largest, exporter of power uh, among the states. So we we uh, we have an excess of electrical power in Pennsylvania. So there's no reason for us as a state to be building new to be co- building new power. We've got plenty plants. of power for our own people and our own needs here in right. the state. Right. Now that's not to say that we shouldn't develop alternative sources that, uh, like wind or solar. Of course, you know we should develop those and develop them aggressively so that we can phase out uh, coal-fired power plants. So uh, in terms of in terms of um, you know conservation i mean it's almost as though is a conspiracy <laughs> i mean people don't know the disaster caused by when they flip a light switch on i mean well not one light switch but in the aggregate the, the, the aggregate effect of, of the lights being on and the fact that we use incandescent bulbs mostly and that they don't have any so for example people should be switching to fluorescence that use you know yeah, the compact Order of the energy or yes. sixth of the energy. They could have, we could have circuits in a house that would simply detect that there's nobody in the room or mm-hmm. no motion in the mm-hmm. room for a half an hour, and the lights would turn themselves off. Mm-hmm. It would save a tremendous amount of power. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, you, there's there's a whole variety of ways for for people to to save energy. You know, you have the compact fluorescent bulbs. You have, uh, you know, when you when you purchase an appliance, make sure you purchase an Energy Star rated appliance. Uh, you, you can see basically the amount of energy. Most, uh, I believe, it's required by federal law that uh, that uh, when you purchase a go to purchase an appliance, uh, it's listed right on the front on the sticker how much energy it's going to be using. So you can you, you can and you should really be aware of how much energy uh, yeah. that particular appliance is going to use up whenever you purchase it. But what I mean about the conspiracy is the fact that somehow people just don't know how important this is, and then there's the fact that. We're also building all these new power plants. So, yeah. so it's like keep consuming. They want you, the whole system wants you to keep consuming so they can keep burning more, making more energy. Yeah, well, it's, and well, it's, there's, no, there's, nothing, there's no pressure that says stop, you know, low, lower this down. That's there's right, no pressure because, at all. That's because the, the, uh, the, the costs, the environmental costs of, of our, our system of consumption uh, is not built into – into people's pocketbooks. Right. Uh, all the environmental costs are externalized. Um, global warming. We're not seeing that hit our pocketbooks yet because you know it, it's not accounted for when when polluters emit. Uh, if there were a carbon tax, then then we would see it and people would pay more attention to to what that type of yeah. stuff. So um, yeah, another example of your TV sets uh, where the, if the TV set is turned on, uh, most TV sets will simply uh, even if even if the image is still like if it's the DVD that's paused or or mm-hmm. or a VCR tape that ended, um, they'll just stay on. That's right. So that's so right. I mean, my son was watching a movie and uh, we went to sleep in front of the TV and it it ended and I came in the next morning and the TV was on glowing a blue screen. I mean, he's using hundreds of watts all all night long mm-hmm. for nothing. Yeah, it, it it would be nice to see see manufacturers build in something like that you would see on a computer screen, uh, uh, where it would shut off after a certain amount of time of non-use. Yeah, uh, you know, so that, that kind of thing ought to be you know legally required if they're not going to do it. Yeah, some I people, mean, a, some, some advocates really, uh, and I I agree with them. Some advocates uh, who claim that we should have an Apollo project, uh, Apollo level project uh, for energy efficiency and renewables in this country to really, uh, that's what's really necessary to to avoid. Um, the, the catastrophe of global warming. Uh, the, the, uh, I think at this point we really can't avoid uh, all the effects of global warming. Hopefully we can we can uh, get our act together and avoid uh, the worst of the effects. So uh, we're talking to uh, Mike Parker of GASP, and uh, if you want to give us a call, um, the number is 412-268-9728. Um, I just got a letter from the... Um, an organization called the Union of Concerned Scientists. And um, this was an analysis of nuclear power plants um, where they um, they did a study recently um, of these plants, and they found that um, 
Severe problems have caused U.S. nuclear reactors to shut down 51 times for a year or longer. Mm -hmm. Um, More than 70% of those outages were caused by programmatic breakdowns that led to cumulative systematic degradation of reactor components. So it goes on. Basically, the owner's failure to to find and fix problems caused safety margins to deteriorate to levels so low that reactor operations could not continue. The study finds that year-plus outages resulting from poor management and ineffective regulatory oversight have cost the ratepayers and stockholders nearly $82 billion in lost revenue. So um, it's saying that, that well, so for one thing, we're paying for nuclear power, right? Yes, yes. That somehow the rate system... It, has, it compensates, uh, the rate system um, compensates for, for energy companies' uh, losses uh, on the nuclear power experiment, for lack of a better word. So it's, it's treated still as sort of an experimental technology, even though they've been doing this for... Well, no, no, it's, it's really not treated as an experimental uh, technology. You know, back when um, uh, nuclear energy was really uh, promoted, uh, it just ended up being so costly, uh, much costlier than originally estimated. Uh, and the energy companies have been allowed to recoup those losses uh, by cost overruns, uh, cost overrun losses, uh, through passing on the cost to, uh, to rate payers. So what this article seems to be saying is that they sort of continued to run the reactors to the point where they were self-destructing. And then when they finally reached the limit, they had to shut down the reactor for a whole year. Mm-hmm. So instead of making timely repairs mm-hmm. um, and, and keeping the thing running, they, they, made, they ran it too long, hoped mm-hmm. that nothing would go wrong. And then they said, oh, we've got to stop it and fix it. So now it's down for a whole year, not doing anything. Yeah. Huge, a huge risk for the sake of profits. I mean, that's what it seems to me. I mean... Um, you see it all over, I think, in, in the industry. I mean, look at um, another example of taking huge risks for the sake of profits is, is BP's uh, failure to, to maintain their pipelines in Alaska where, where the corrosion built up to the point where there was leaks. So, um, yeah, that's another example. Because, but it almost seems as though the, the shutdown – so the shutdown occurs, so the price gets to $80 a barrel or whatever it was, $70 a barrel. Mm-hmm. And they say, "Oh, we got to fix this this nasty." <laughs> and then the price goes up again. And the price even goes up farther, right? And it's it, it it's uh oh they didn't oh then then they meanwhile they've been making tens of billions of quarterly profits. Yes, and they didn't have profits. the money to fix a pipe. Yeah, it's it's really uh you know it um it makes you wonder, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> to say the least. So. uh well, uh, are there any other issues that uh, that you want to get into today um, in the program, Mike, or any other issues that we didn't touch? Oh, we didn't talk about biofuels. Uh, we didn't talk about peak oil. Um. Well, you know, we could we could discuss biofuels a little bit. We are um, involved with uh, Still City Biofuels right now on a, an education project uh, concerning diesel and uh, biodiesel as well. Um, it's we're just in the offings of that, we haven't really got it underway yet, but it is an education project uh, sponsored by the EPA, and we're going to be educating, um, you know, grade school children, high school children, college students, the entire community really, uh, on um, on the dangers of diesel's emissions, uh, and uh, and some of the benefits that that biofuels. Uh, so, do, so biodiesels that that's that's where you make you take. And convert waste oil from you know fry from uh, fry uh, fry well, food restaurants and stuff like that. And you then- can you can use the, the the fry grease basically. You can use that. Um, lot most of I'd I'd say all uh, of the larger biofuels uh, production biodiesel production is made from virgin vegetable oil or soybean oil. Uh, so. Often it's it is uh, there are fossil fuel <laughs> costs I- I associated with biodiesels. Um, for instance, you know soybeans are farmed using uh, petrochemicals. They're farmed using um, uh, farm equipment, uh, right, power, right, powered by petro- yes. petroleum products. So um, biodiesel is is a is a is a great um, transition fuel. Well, it's so, like it's like is it like ethanol in that, in that sense that the ethanol. 
What's the difference? Well, I mean, both both are the same thing, right? You you make it out of farmed. You, well, both of them do come from, um, you know, they're renewable in the sense that they they uh, they come from um, an organic uh, substance, be it be it corn, be it um, um, plant wastes, be it uh, soybeans, be it fry grease. Uh, they all they all come from uh, from some sort of. Uh, but you're saying that, that, that they actually are you saying that they the biodiesel is something that they they actually create it. They grow the plants just to make the fuel. Or is it a waste in, material from using the soybeans? In some making? in some circumstances, yes, they do actually just grow the plants to make the fuel. So, uh, in, in biodiesel is is uh, you know it, there are many benefits to it. Um, you know it does reduce our dependency on foreign oil. Uh, there are emission uh, reductions associated with biodiesel, so it is it is a it is a good thing. Okay, but it's not. It's it's just one part. It is just of a solution. Or you know one one small, you know piece of the puzzle to get right right. The, it biodiesel is 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 not um, the entire answer to. Is there any biodiesel being used in any of the school buses and and uh, or city buses currently? I I don't is know. There, I don't there, know the answer to that particular question. I know it is being produced and used in the area, um, okay, privately and by some commercial fleets. So. Uh, well, I guess, uh, well, we have just a few minutes left here. Um, if you want to give us a call, you can. Um, I should also mention again GASP website, which is www.gaspgh.org. And um, I guess we'll just, um, I'll just uh, end it there and play this one more excerpt from uh, from a, a, a program that I had. Um, okay. Unless you have any further comments, uh, Mike. Well, I'd just like to thank you again for having me, and uh, you know, uh, it's been great to be on the show. Yeah, thank, thank you issues. for thank you for being here. Um, why don't we play this excerpt? Um, this is a uh, a short excerpt from another Air America program. It's a uh, Rachel Maddow's um, Air America program. This is from Friday, September eighth, um, and we'll play the speech, and then I'll talk. Uh, it's like three or four minutes, and then we'll talk a little bit about that, and then uh, finish up the show. So um, here is the um, the excerpt. Uh, do I have the attention of my producer? Yes. Okay. Here we go. Mark Mazzetti uh, today has has a stunner of an article debunking Bush's speech about Guantanamo and the CIA black site prisons on Wednesday. The big surprise press conference on Wednesday. We have CIA black site prisons, but we're emptying them out. We're sending all those guys to Guantanamo. Turns out he said a lot of things that were just flat out not true in that speech. One of the main things he talked about in that speech was defending the CIA's methods. He said he was emptying the the black site prisons, but he was defending the system, keeping them in place, and defending the tactics like waterboarding and mock executions and starving people and all this other stuff that he does not consider torture, uh, defending that stuff as legal. The procedures were tough, and they were safe, and lawful, and necessary. Why does he think those things are legal. Where does he get the grounds for asserting that they were legal? The Department of Justice reviewed the authorized methods extensively and determined them to be lawful. Okay. The Department of Justice looked into them and said all that stuff was legal. Here's the problem. The Department of Justice may think those things are legal, but we've seen no evidence of that. We don't even know. We haven't seen evidence of what they think about torture since the Justice Department said you could do anything short of organ failure or death and not call it torture. Remember that? The torture memos? The whole reason I call Attorney General Alberto Gonzalez the torture guy? They repudiated that memo about what constitutes torture, but they never after that released any other legal explanation or justification for torture or what isn't torture, or whether those, legal, whether those methods would be legal. So Bush is asserting to us that the Justice Department looked into all this stuff and found it was legal. Nobody else has seen any evidence of that whatsoever. There was also this gem in Wednesday's speech. Key leaders from both political parties on Capitol Hill were briefed about this program. Okay. Big intelligence program he's talking about here. Key leaders from both political parties were briefed. You'd think that key leaders from both political parties on an intelligence thing would include, like, the top intelligence guy from the Democrats in the Senate, right? Hmm? That would be the top Democrat on the Intelligence Committee. That would be Jay Rockefeller. 
He said yesterday that he was not briefed fully on that program. So you can assert that key leaders were briefed, but unless you're defining key leaders as some guy you met in the Democratic cloakroom when you were wrestling through people's pockets, nobody's going to believe you. There was also this gem when he was talking about the importance of capturing Abu Zubaydah. For example, Zubaydah disclosed Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, or KSM, was the mastermind behind the 9-11 attacks and used the alias Mukhtar. This was a vital piece of the puzzle that helped our intelligence community pursue KSM. Okay, except here's the problem. Bush is saying that we got Zubaida, and Zubaida gave us this information that Khalid Sheikh Mohammed was the mastermind of the 9-11 attacks, and he told us his alias. Here's the problem. Not true. The 9-11 Commission report says the CIA knew about Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, KSM, and even his alias, Mukhtar, uh, for months before Abu Zubaida was captured. Abu Zubaida did not give the U.S. government that information. We already had it. But wait, there's more. Every time he gave a concrete example in this speech, it turns out it was not true. For example, Zubaida identified one of KSM's accomplices in the 9-11 attacks, a terrorist named Ramzi bin al-Sheikh. The information Zubaydah provided helped lead to the capture of Ben al-Sheib. No. Didn't happen. The U.S. knew about Ramzi bin al-Sheib for months before Abu Zubaydah was picked up. Abu Zubaydah did not give the U.S. government its first information about Ramzi bin al-Sheib. None of those things that he said were true. All the evidence for this stuff is in public documents. I mean, it's in the court papers for the Zacharias Musawi trial. If you want to look it up, Mr. President, you're going to be fact-checked from here on out. Nobody believes you on this stuff anymore. You're going to have to try harder to at least appear like you're telling the truth. Air America Mornings. A program called um, Rachel Maddow's uh, Air America program, uh, Rachel, the Rachel Maddow Show on Air America. And I thought that was a really, really well done little little excerpt analyzing Bush's uh, speech where he announced the uh, secret prisons uh, the secret torture prisons that they had in Eastern Europe, um, and uh, tried to justify why they were useful, um, giving a lot of examples which, as she explains in the public record, actually were not true, um, and the torture really isn't actually useful. Um, so uh, this is just uh, something, another reason why I'd like to see Air America uh, on in Pittsburgh. Um, so that brings us to the end of the program. I want to thank... Um, Mike Parker again for uh, for being with us, and also my producer Matt Horniak, uh, and uh, we'll see you again in two weeks.